chapter 17 from verse 1. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, talking with, them, with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I can make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And the voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. On what is a desperately sad Sunday with uh, news of Richard's death, we have, I think, in this reading, words from God concerning the Lord Jesus that I hope will be of deepest comfort and assurance. For with the vision of the transfiguration of Jesus, how he will come in his future glory on the great day of the resurrection, we are given a glimpse of the glory that awaits every one of his faithful disciples. And Richard, without any shadow of doubt, was such a faithful disciple. And here we see the corner of the curtain of eternity lifted and the master's true dignity unveiled. We're granted a glimpse of the good things yet to come at the transfiguration. So frequently in our lives, we are reminded of tribulations and weaknesses and battles and conflicts. And quickly we take our eyes off the future reward and the good things that lie ahead. And in this passage, we're shown Jesus in all his glory. And in this passage, we're shown Moses and Elijah beyond the grave, one who had been dead for 1,400 years, another for 900 and yet they are alive with the Lord. Listen to this comment from the 19th century. There is no such thing as annihilation. All that have ever fallen asleep in Jesus, however they may, that may have come about, will be found in safekeeping. Patriarchs and prophets, apostles and martyrs, down to the humblest servant of God in our day. And so on what is a really sad Sunday for our church family, we have words from God concerning the Lord Jesus that I think are of the deepest comfort for all. You will have noticed that right at the heart of 
the account is the voice from heaven. The clouds descend. The voice speaks. The clouds then lift. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. The Lord Jesus is front and center of the whole piece. But the voice is very clear. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. I spoke on this passage one time in Cambridge University. I asked the gathering undergraduate students how many words they'd heard in any given week, and they actually fell about laughing, literally. We newscast and podcast, upload and download, tweet and blog, text and message. We have news feeds, apps and Instagrams. We tune in and are linked in. How many words do you think you listen to in any given week? How many do you think you speak? Well, the vision itself, that is the transfiguration experience, shows us that we must listen. And I want us to work through the aspects of the experience before we get to the voice with the indication that God wants us to listen. So the mountain is significant. Jesus takes three disciples six days later up the high mountain, James, Peter, and John. And so many key moments in the history of God's people take place on the mountain. Mount Moriah, Abraham and Isaac, Mount Sinai, Moses and the Covenant, Mount Abel, Joshua and God's people, the Temple Mount, Revelation and Reconciliation. The prophets speak of the mountain being raised up above all mountains, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. The Psalms had the same, the Sermon on the Mount. So the mountain is significant. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. But then the vision is significant. I say vision because it's not actually really a vision. It's not a mirage or a dream or an hallucination even. It is a transfiguration. The word is metamorphe. It's a genuine transformation. The Lord Jesus is transfigured and we see him in his future glory. He was transfigured before them, verse 2. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light. He's just uttered the words of chapter 16, verse 28. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And here we are shown Jesus in his kingdom glory with his face shining like the sun and his clothes white as light. Ezekiel saw a likeness with human appearance upward from his waist was gleaming metal. Daniel saw one like a son of man. David spoke of the son of man whom the Lord had made strong for himself. And here we have the son of man, the long-awaited figure, in all his glory. He was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light. So the mountain is significant. The vision, if I can call it that, is significant. 
the presence of Moses and Elijah is significant. If you look at verse 3, behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. God had promised a prophet like Moses who had come, and we are told that Elijah must come before the great and final day. Elijah was the great prophet of Reformation. Moses led the people of Israel through the Exodus. And so together with Moses and Elijah, we have, if you like, the representative figures of the law and the prophets and of all of God's speech to his people down through the ages. The founding fathers, the Queen Elizabeth I and the Winston Churchill, if you like, of the nation of Israel. And so the figures, Moses and Elijah, are significant. The mountain, the vision. But then the bright cloud is significant. If you look at verse 4, and Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we're here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And in Exodus, the cloud led the people, symbolizing the presence of God, and on the mountain and in the tabernacle and at the temple, the cloud descended, symbolizing the presence of God, the glory cloud in Ezekiel symbolizes God's presence. And so the whole experience of the transfiguration is designed to cry out to us that we should listen. The mountain, the transfiguration itself, Moses and Elijah, the glory cloud. And I guess we sort to seek to emulate this kind of thing when we've got a big announcement to make. You know, the Olympic Committee did it all that years ago when we had the Olympics in London. We were all looking forward. What's it going to look like? Apple do it. A great show, huge anticipation. Apple 586, iPhone, whatever it happens to be. The start of the Ashes show, we're all, Ashes show, the Ashes series, we're all listening but there's nothing like this. And the Apostle Peter, who reflects on it, says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. Are we listening? Are you listening? On its own, the vision is not adequate. You know, it's often said, isn't it, that a picture paints a thousand words? But the trouble is that a picture can yield a thousand meanings. For clarity, words are required. And words do bring definition and provide precision, especially when those words are chosen with meticulous care and when those words come within a context that ties them down in terms of their meaning. One writer describes verse 5 as the high point of the narrative. Peter certainly saw it that way. We heard the voice born from heaven. And so we see verse 5. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. 
In Mark's account of this incident, in Mark's gospel, we're told that the visual experience left the disciples terrified. Are we surprised? And we're told that Peter blurts out from his position of terror the first thing that comes into his head. We see it here. Lord, it's good that we're here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. I was visiting a church family earlier this week, and their um, 30-something-year-old son was there, and we read this together in anticipation of them listening to this on the live stream. And the son just said, oh, Peter was suffering from an episode of celebrity confusion. It kind of scrambled his brain when he met the celebrity. I I know one person who met a preacher who they listened to regularly, uh, and the preacher said, now, what's your name? And he says he completely forgot his name. He was so kind of just didn't know what to blurt out. His mouth opened and shut. Three boos for the three great prophets. Hold on a second, Peter. You've just said you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Three boos, three boos for the three great prophets. Come on, Peter. Moses, Elijah, and Jesus on a par, please. And so the cloud descends. And when the cloud lifts, they saw Jesus only alone. And the words are chosen with extraordinary precision. I mean, just on its own, this incident would make us say, well, we better listen. God only speaks audibly from heaven on three occasions in the Gospels. This is one of them. There are 14 words here, 12 in the original Greek, Each one is laden with meaning. And the very first word is instructive, isn't it? Uh, Moses and Elijah, should we build three? This is my son. I kind of wonder how it was spoken. I'd love to have an audio recording of it, wouldn't you? But it's definitely, this is my son. Listen to him. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. But then the word my son is key. Israel in the Old Testament is described as God's son, supremely God's Messiah. The king is called my son. If you have ever time to go back to Psalm 2, you'll see the phrase, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And Psalm 2, that phrase, the Son of God, becomes a title for God's eternal ruler and king, the Son of God. So the Son of God refers to God's eternal king, before whom every man, woman, and child who has ever lived will have to stand to give account of their life. The Son of God. The Son of Man and the Son of God become equivalent references for the one to whom every nation will pay homage, before whom all all knees will bow, and who will hold every woman and child to account. But then when you look at verse 5, the majority of the verse is actually a straight quote from Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. Isaiah 42, verse 1 reads this, like this, this is my chosen son with whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved son, Listen to him. And in this first section, the first section of the second part of the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 42, God promises a servant who will be his child 
who will suffer, die, and rise, carrying God's judgment at all our human rebellion, failure, and sin, who will be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and upon whom will be laid the sins of the whole world. And so this statement in the context of Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42, and in the context where Jesus himself has just told the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and must suffer many things. Well, it carries particular weight, doesn't it? As Jesus is identified as God the Father from heaven, the voice born from the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And then there's that little word, beloved. And the word beloved doesn't appear in Psalm 2 or in Isaiah 42, verse 1. And the word is included additionally by Matthew later in his gospel when he quotes from Psalm 42. And my sense is that the word is deliberately spoken by God to remind us of God's request to Abraham on a different mountain, Mount Moriah upon which the temple of Jerusalem was built, the place of sacrifice, when God said to Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love. And when God provided the sacrifice for sin. And so really we could spend three Sunday mornings looking at those 14 words, and the phrase carries the closest, requires the closest of study. And this phrase points to the true identity of the transfigured Jesus. He is the Son. And this phrase speaks of the accomplished mission of the transfigured Jesus. He is the servant. And this phrase identifies the divine provision of his son, the son whom he loved, to be the sin sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Are we listening? Uh, we listen to the CEO, summoned to the office, sent a memo round the whole company. Uh, we listen to the CEO quite happily. We listen to the head teacher. School reports day, the report's coming through. We certainly listen. Or would you come and see the head teacher? We'll listen. We, we listen to the consultant as our results come back. We, we listen to the WhatsApp notification ping, and we're very interested in what might have come through. Is it another wicket? Whatever. We listen to the news posted on results day, Oh, we're happy to listen to that. Do you know, we listen with undue attention sometimes to religious leaders. We're happy to listen to them, to bishops and archbishops and uh, celebrity preachers, whatever they may be. We're happy to listen to them. But God speaks from heaven, and he says to us of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. That we should listen, the transfiguration experience. Why we should listen, the voice born from the majestic glory. To what we should listen. 
See, it's all very well saying listen, but what in particular are we to listen to? Is this a generalized, well, we should take what Jesus has to say with utmost seriousness. We could stop there, couldn't we, and say we should listen to Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7, the mission of the church, chapter 10, the growth of the kingdom, chapter 13, the preciousness of every single disciple, chapter 18. Listen to him. But these words are spoken by God from heaven in a particular context, and the transfiguration takes place within a setting and before the specifically chosen three. Remember, Peter has only just declared that Jesus is the Christ. Remember, Jesus has only just declared to Simon that he is Peter and that he, the Lord Jesus, will build his church upon the Peter's declaration that Jesus is the Christ. Remember, Jesus has just announced that he as the Christ must suffer many things and be killed and be raised. Remember, Peter has only just dared, he's only just rebuked Jesus. He dared to rebuke Jesus. This can never be that you suffer, Jesus. How could you possibly go to the cross? Peter has just rebuked Jesus. Remember, remember that Jesus has only just told Peter that to suggest that his sacrificial death on the cross to carry the sins of the human race is not at the heart of his identity of the Christ is satanic. Get behind me, Satan. Remember, Jesus has just told us that anyone would come after him, they must take up their cross and deny themselves and suffer as they follow. Remember, Jesus has declared that he is the Son of Man and that he will return to judge the living and the dead. We can conclude It'll be a longer than usual conclusion, but we can conclude nonetheless. And we conclude first that the rock on which the church is built is the rock of the kingship of one who suffered and died at the hands of sinful men in order to carry the judgment of God. We can conclude that. That the church is built on the rock of the truth that Jesus is God's king that he suffered and died on the cross as a suffering servant, that he is the one son whom God loved, who gave his life as a sacrifice for sin. Remove the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Seek to deny the penal substitution of God's king in the place of you and me. Suggest that we don't need the death of the Lord Jesus Christ to deal with our own sin or that the suffering of Jesus is something that is just slightly tangential to the Christian faith. Why, it's not only satanic to do such a thing, to downplay the sacrificial suffering of Jesus. It is also gross disobedience to do such a thing. And it's a denial of the ascended, glorified Christ, who God the Father, vindicates as God the Son. This is my Son, my beloved. Listen. 
So first, the rock on which the church is built, the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Listen to that, remove that, and not only are you doing something that Jesus considers to be satanic, but you are also in gross disobedience to God and his command. Secondly, that the Lord God of heaven glorifies King Jesus, who is prepared to suffer selflessly and sacrificially at the hands of sinful men. This is the point of glory. There in heaven, the thing that is and will be center stage, lauded, rewarded, praised and promoted, is the selfless, servant-hearted suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's just said he's going to his death. He's just declared that he must suffer. This is my son, my beloved, with whom I'm well pleased. This is the thing that attracts the pleasure of God, the glory that his only son should reveal himself as the one who is selfless, servant-hearted, suffering. When you think about it, the transfiguration could have happened at any point in the gospel. It could have happened when Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount. This is my beloved. Listen to him. It could have happened when he healed Hundreds, it could have happened when he raided Jairus' daughter. That would have been a great time for the transfiguration. This is my son. It could have happened when he fed the 5,000. This is my son, but it didn't. It happened as Jesus declared that he was going to his death on the cross in order to carry God's judgment at sin. This is my son, my beloved with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And so this thing, this death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, with which God is so pleased, it reveals something of God's character, this selfless service, this sacrificial suffering. This is the thing that shows God for who he is. Look into heaven, glimpse heaven, and you get a glimpse of the God whose very essence and heart is selflessness and service. Isn't it a glorious reality? Not only is it the rock on which the church is built, you can't be part of the church if you haven't come to the crucified king and asked him for forgiveness. Not only is it the rock, it is also the very character of God. Selfless, sacrificial suffering. This is what he lords and honors Third, that selfless suffering and sacrificial service are therefore a central part of the Christian life. And are you listening? Are we listening? Because the disciples never really get this. And I don't think we ever really get it. Do you see, the Lord Jesus has just declared his coming suffering. And he has then said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And in the context of that Christ-like discipleship, the rock and then what God considers precious, Jesus then says, take up your own cross 
And in the context of that, he says, this is my son. Listen to him. It seems then that the honors list in heaven, if you like, it's very much in the, in, in, in the news, the honors list in heaven is made up of those who have actually taken up their cross to follow Jesus. It seems like the medals table, if you like, if we can put it like that, in heaven is made up of those who said, actually, yes, the Lord Jesus walked in selfless suffering, and I am going to walk in selflessness following him. Whatever it means for me in my circumstance to serve others, and to give myself up sacrificially. That's how I'm going to walk. And the disciples found this so hard. Within minutes, uh, Lord, who's the greatest? And within days, Lord, grant that these two sons of mine, one will sit on your left hand, one will sit on your right hand. And we find it so hard to grasp that as we follow the one who revealed the very character of God to be selfless service, Christian discipleship is about selfless sacrifice. Indeed, I would go so far as to say that if we do not know anything of the battle of daily selfless sacrifice, we must be caused to wonder if we're even Christian. Fourth conclusion, he will return in judgment. <laughs> and this is, vision is a foretaste. The Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of the Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. He's speaking about those who have crucified Christ, who will have nothing to do with Christ. He will return in judgment. And so the Son of Man is the Son of God, and the Son of God is the suffering servant, and the suffering servant is the sacrificial lamb, and the sacrificial lamb is the risen king, and the risen king is the transfigured, ascended, enthroned, and glorified Lord Jesus Christ, who stands in glory in heaven, of which we're given a little glimpse here, and he will return in glory to judge the living and the dead, and he will summon the rich and the poor, and the upright and the downcast, and he will Summon the middle class and the working class and the upper class and the newly crowned monarch will be summoned to stand before him in judgment and the treble winning coach will be summoned to stand before him in judgment and the university professor and every single one of us, no exception, no exemption, no exclusion, no omission, will stand before him in judgment. And those who've come to him as the suffering servant who's paid for sin will be rewarded. And finally, on this day, on this particular Sunday, this very sad day for all of us as a church family, that those who have built their house on this rock, such will be with him in his glory, all sin dealt with, all suffering removed, all toil and trouble and tribulation dealt with, and that the suffering and the trials and the tribulations of this life in this broken world that you and I go through every day if we are disciples of Jesus Christ are not in vain because we will be with him. He was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light 
And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Amen.